Our scripture reading is Hosea 10, the entirety of this chapter this night. There we read, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he builds. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false, now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgments spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Its peoples mourn for it, and so does its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idols. Samaria's kings shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high place of Avin, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us to the hills, fall on us. For the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow for himself. Show for yourself righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. At Shemal destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil." At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Several years ago at our former home, there was a few bare spots in our front yard, and so I decided to recede. And so I went to the store and I examined some seed. There was various kinds, as you can imagine. And so I looked at this kind, and then I went over and looked at this kind, and I was deciding between a few different brands and I ended up going with the first one I looked at, and so I went and got it and purchased it and brought it home, and I looked on the back, and it told me what I needed to do. I needed to rake the dirt, and I needed to spread some new dirt, and then I would have to spread out the seed and then perhaps put a little uh, hay or something of that nature on top, and so I did everything as I was told to do. But much to my dismay... I found out after I finished spreading the seed that I had grabbed the wrong type of seed and therefore had spread Bermuda grass seed in my fescue lawn. As I was looking through the different seeds, I had inadvertently grabbed the wrong bag on the way out. The bags were identical, yet for that one word, that very important word that said Bermuda instead of fescue. 
So in other words, I did everything right, but I missed the most important part. And my wife has still not let me forget that one. But the point was that it was too late. The seed was spread. There was no way that I was going to be able to gather it back up again. In a sense, the damage was done and the lesson was learned. At least it makes for a good sermon analogy, even though it doesn't reflect well on the fool who did it. And what we see, I think, tonight in Hosea chapter 10 is something similar. Chapter 9, as we saw last week, was filled with analogies of agriculture, grapes and vines and palm trees. And chapter 10 has a lot of the same. As we mentioned last week, it seems to have been written during harvest time. That that was the time that this prophecy was given to Israel, those northern tribes. And perhaps they were celebrating the, the Feast of Weeks, as we read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Yet, as we saw then, they were using this feast, this celebration that was meant to be unto the Lord and to be thankful unto God for what he had provided through the harvest. They had actually taken it and turned it and perverted it, and they were giving worship to Baal, the fertility god. As a result, they were entering into the wickedness associated with such worship. It'd be similar to celebrating Christmas, celebrating all the trappings of Christmas, but kind of missing the point of Christmas, which is to be about Christ, taking the whole reason for the season, as they say, out of it, missing the reason why we have Christmas at all. And that's exactly what seems to be taking place here in chapter 10. The bad seed of evil and wickedness have been spread, and as a result, Israel, in a sense, is reaping the wicked fruits. And somehow they are seemingly surprised by this, but Hosea tells them, do not be surprised. You have turned from God, you have forsaken his ways, and so, therefore, you should not be surprised that, spiritually speaking, all you have is fruit of wickedness. And as a result, God has left you to your own demise and has forsaken you. And as we see here in verse 1 of chapter 10, Israel is called a vine. And so we'll see this chapter in two points, the bad fruit of a rotten vine, and second, the good fruit of the true vine. First, the bad fruit of a rotten vine. And tonight I want to begin not in Hosea, but I want to take you back to a very dark time in the life of Israel, the time of Judges. If you were with us before we got into Hosea, you know that we went through the book of Joshua. And Joshua was seemingly a a very bright period in Israel's history. Not perfect, but seemingly it was a time of faithfulness to God, faithfulness on the behalf of the people, doing what God commanded them to do. Joshua led them admirably well, and they were able to defeat their enemies and establish themselves in the land. But as they established themselves in the land, that quickly turns. And we hear that familiar frame in the book of Judges, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But in the midst of that, in Judges 19, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. We have this story, this story which is 
a sad, sad story, a sad commentary on Israel, and is probably, I think, in my judgment, one of the worst stories of the darkest periods in the time of Israel and their history. And it's found in Judges 19, 22 through 30. And the context is that there was an Levite that was traveling through and he needed a place to stay. There was no hotels to stay in and so people would need to open up their homes and uh, show hospitality. And he comes into this town and he is going to just stay in the city square but this older man begs for him to come and stay the nights with him. And there we read of this terrible debaucherous story. Begin reading in verse 22. It says, And they were making their hearts merry. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the doors, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. The man, the master of this house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughters and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came, fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was night. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the door of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of his house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us go. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his house. And we will end reading there, but you can even read even that which takes place afterwards, which is just as horrific as what has gone on before. As I said, this is a horrifying story of sin and debauchery. And there's so many things that are wrong with it. A Levite having a concubine, going to a city with men filled with homosexual desires, and then the giving up of a woman to these men and them doing as their sinful and wicked ways would desire. And then as we go on to read of what this Israel, this Levite does by waking up Israel to this sin. It would take a whole sermon just to work our way through it all. But you can't read a story like that and not want to cover your ears or cover your eyes and say, why is this here? Why would the Bible talk about such a a terrible thing? Well, I think it not only demonstrates the truthfulness of the Bible, that this is not hagiography, this isn't ancient texts that are only telling us that which we want to hear and even embellishing it to make it sound better. No, the Bible shows the bad and even the very ugly of Israel's history. And what is here is meant to shock us, in a sense, to human darkness and to depravity. 
And sure, there are other examples in the Bible. There are other examples from history as well. But I think we should read that and not sugarcoat human nature. This is human nature in its most natural way, if you want to put it that way, in its most rampant and moral uh, perversion and decay as it can be. It's life without limitation. It's life without restriction. If you remove all bounds and all rules for mankind, this is what takes place. This is what happens. And in a sense, this is, as I said, so jarring to our senses and to our system that when we read it and and see that this took place, not in some far-off land, not in some pagan nation, but this was to be God's covenant people. This was the city of Gibeah. This was the tribe of Benjamin. We can't help but think this ought not be. And yet, it is. And we read later on that this whole city of Gibeah is wiped out. And no one felt bad for them. No one reads that and says, oh, those poor men. No, we read that and say, good riddance. A sense of justice says they got what was coming to them. It's similar to the death of Adolf Hitler or Mussolini or perhaps in modern times Osama bin Laden. There was rejoicing in the streets But in a sense, it took something as horrific as this for Israel to wake up, to understand what was happening in their very midst. You might ask, why am I saying all of this? Why bring this story? Well, after reading a story like that in Judges, you would think, well, this surely was just a one-time event. This is something that would never happen again. But yet, Hosea tells this in chapter 9, verse 9, they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the day of Gibeah. And then again in chapter 10, verse 9, from the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Therefore shall not war against the unjust overtake them as in the days of Gibeah. You hear what Hosea is saying. And you think, no, surely not. But yes, Hosea tells us that they have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. And then again, from the days of Gibeah, you have sinned and continued in that sin. In a sense, they had not learned their lessons. They had continued on in the same type of debauchery. And so, as we understand what Hosea was prophesying against, he wasn't prophesying against a a small kind of white lies, sins that could be tolerated. No, these were sins of sinfulness and wickedness to the utmost. And so the question must be asked, how could they have gotten to that point? And what can we learn from their sins so that we would not repeat the past. Well, as we saw last week, they had gotten drunk off of their own prosperity. And that's what Hosea says here in chapter 10, verse 1 again, that Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. In other words, they are prosperous. 
It's a prosperous time for Israel. And yet, look what they do with their prosperity. At the end of verse 1, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. That doesn't mean that they were improving their infrastructure when it speaks of improving their pillars. No, it means that they are building Asherah poles and committing sins of sexuality unto these gods and in front of these pillars and these poles that they had taken their prosperity and and had offered it up to another god and offered themselves their bodies to these gods and yet it's amazing as you read through the old testament how they were warned of this as if god knew the human nature knew the human heart, knew the things that they were going to be tempted with and and warned them beforehand. And that's exactly what Moses did in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says this, this is before they enter into the land. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God, not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your hearts be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hands have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. You read that and you say they couldn't have had a clearer warning. Moses clearly told them that as they multiply in wealth, as everything begins to multiply, your your flocks and your herds and your silver and your gold, do not think that this is things that you yourself, by your own power, have provided. This has been provided uh, provided to you by your God, and lest your hearts go astray. And that is exactly what we read here in Hosea chapter 10. Abundantly warned, and yet abundantly they go astray, doing exactly what Moses told them to do. Well, we also see that they not only got drunk off their prosperity, but they had a corrupted government. You might want to read, as we read earlier, Judges 19, and think, well, that's because they didn't have any civil government. They didn't have any king, and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. No As we read in Hosea chapter 10, they had a king, but it didn't help. Look at what the people were saying in verse 3. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? People are saying, we don't have a king. They had a king, but they just weren't acknowledging him as king. Perhaps as some have recently said that the current president is, he's not my president. He's not the one that represents me. That's what those during Hosea's day were saying. 
Oh, we, we have no king. There's no king over me. And why is there no king over me? Because as it says, they do not fear the Lord. They would not respect any higher authority, politically or spiritually. And therefore, they were doing exactly what they were doing in the day of Judges, doing what was right in their own eyes. But the sad commentary is, even if they had a king, which they did, as they said, a king, what could he do for us? The kings, as you read in Israel, were just as corrupt, if not more so, than the people themselves. So therefore, there was a spirit of anarchy and corruption and rebellion throughout Israel. Well, the third thing that we see that brought them to this point of sin was that they were entering into false worship. And we've seen this throughout Hosea. Verse 5, it says, The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. That calf is referring to the calf that Jeroboam made when he first established the ten tribes in the north. And he set one up in Bethel. As you know, Bethel means that house of God. But notice what Hosea says here. He does not call it the calf of Bethel. He calls it the calf of Beth-Avon. Because it's not the house of God. It's the house of evil. That's what Beth-Avon means. The worship of the true God was not taking place. There was a false worship done by idolatrous priests. He goes on to say in verse 6, the thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. That thing which Hosea refers to, not even calling it by name, is that calf. He just calls it a thing because that's all that it is. It has no power. It has no might. It's going to be carted off. It's going to be carried off because it's a worthless idol that cannot even save itself, let alone anything or anyone else. It is a thing of shame. And so as we look at Israel and we think, how is it that they could have gotten to this point? Well, we see they had strayed culturally, they had strayed civilly, they had strayed religiously. In other words, the three main spheres in which we are to demonstrate our godly behavior, there was none. It was all corrupt. And as a result, the country was in free fall, moral collapse. They had lost their moral compass. There was a spiritual sickness throughout all of Israel. They had sown with bad seeds, and they were reaping a wicked harvest. We read exactly that in verse 13. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruits of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your own warriors. And so there is much warning here for us as well as a people, as a country, that we are not to lose our bearing, our roots, our our moral compass. As we mentioned last week, we are a very prosperous country. We are a prosperous people. We are blessed in so many different ways. But how do we use that prosperity? Do we use it to, to thank the Lord? Do we use it for His service, for His kingdom, to bless God and to bless others? Or do we use it sinfully and indulgently, thinking that 
My power has provided this. My hands have attained this, and so I can use it as I please. No, we never have a right to use anything that the Lord gives us just for what we please or that which we desire. It should be only that which could be rightly justified in the eyes of God Almighty who has given it to us. We need to remember the words of Jesus when he said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Or again, as Jesus once said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And seemingly that's what Israel was doing. Yes, they were a luxuriant vine, but they were forfeiting their soul as a result of their prosperity. So too, we as Americans can very much fall into that same way. And again, as it talks here about a corrupted government, we are thankful for governments, a good, moral, righteous government, a righteous foundation. But when a system as good as what we have even here in the United States would become corrupt, I'm not saying it is absolutely corrupt, but it, something as good and created by God can go astray. When people begin to throw off authority or the government itself does become corrupted, then we need to watch out. We, we see what takes place in a land like that. In many ways, if you want to see a good picture of that, our our brother John Paul in Haiti is enduring that even now. As there's riots in the streets and no work for people to engage in because there is no commerce in that land. And as a result, the whole country is in dismay. And we should not think that that could never happen again to us. I think Hosea chapter 10 would warn us again be careful. Do not lose your compass. Do not lose your foundation. Don't lose your moral righteousness. And what is it that's going to teach us what is right and what's true? Well, again, the, the true worship of God, and that's where they had gone astray. That right belief, right doctrine, right theology is the bedrock of society. And when that erodes, There's no foundation of truth. And that's why we need to continue to preach and teach and proclaim the truth. Even if the society that we live in thinks it's weird and strange, even as we saw in chapter 9, they called the prophet a fool and had the spirit of madness. But Hosea says that he is the watchman and needs to sound the alarm And so we do not preach and teach for our own intellectual stimulation, no. We teach and preach so that we would bear good works, that we would think rightly and do that which we are commanded to do, that life and doctrine are very much connected together. Otherwise, we will also sow bad seed and produce bad fruits. Well, second, then, we see the good fruit of the true vine. This isn't just a section of condemnation. It's not just a section of warning and judgment. Hosea does preach also what is true and what is right. Hosea doesn't hide the solution. We see it in verse 12. 
sow for yourself righteousness, and you'll reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord. He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Notice that, sow righteousness. It's more than just do what is right and don't do what is wrong. It's the idea of covenantal righteousness. Remember, this is a book about covenants. The chief picture that we are given in the book of Hosea is that of marriage. And we have this analogy between Hosea and his wife, Gomer. Hosea was to love a a prostitute, that he was to call and woo her to himself and to make her his wife. He was to pay the ransom price of her captivity. And through that we see the picture of what the Lord God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has done for us. That we were that prostitute, lost in sin. We were the ones that needed to be ransomed. We were the ones that needed to have the ransom price paid. And the Lord Jesus Christ did that with his own body and blood. He paid the ultimate price. He gave of himself fully, even to the point of the cross itself, so that we could be saved and redeemed. And the light of such love as that, the love that we see in Hosea doing that for his wife, as we see Christ doing that for his bride, for the church, do we not want to love the Lord in return and do what is right? The law was never meant to save them. It was meant to point out what the life of a child of God should be. It was a life that was pleasing to God and good for them. If we were not sinful, if we were not fallen, we would need no law because we would do the law naturally. But because we are sinful, because we are fallen, and we don't do what the law says, we need the law to show us how we have strayed and what is right from what is wrong. Hosea says, you know what is right. God has given it to you. And so therefore, sow righteousness. And he says, you'll reap steadfast love. You'll reap the steadfast covenant love of God. You will know that love, that love of relationship. He says, break up your fallowed ground. Break up your shallowness of your hearts, your hard-heartedness because as he goes on to say it's time to seek the Lord and the Lord will come and rain righteousness upon you he will pour out the covenant blessings Isaiah is saying that this is not foreign this is not strange this is what relationship this is what covenant is all about that covenant that you have forsaken Jose in a sense puts it back out there for them even though they have sinned in the most debaucherous ways, in the most grotesque sins, yet the offer of covenant relationship is given to them again and again and again before it is too late, before they are cut off. And again, that covenant relationship is put before us as well, even in the midst of our sins. We might read something like Judges 19 and go, well, I have sin, but at least I don't have that sin. Nevertheless, our sin is heinous in the sight of God. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ, by his mercy and by his grace, offers to you again that covenant relationship and says, come back, sow the seeds of righteousness, and you shall reap the steadfast love of your God. And what a joy and privilege it is to be in covenant relationship with our God. And this idea of Israel being a vine obviously reminds us of John 15, where Israel was a vine, but their fruit was bad and spiritually barren. We hear of the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Here we have the true nature, the true picture of what I think Hosea is trying to convey to Israel, is trying to convey to us through the Holy Spirit that we're not to just try harder, we're not just to do more, we're not just to not do what is wrong and do what is right. No, Jesus is saying that we are to abide. Abide by faith in the Lord. Dwell in that relationship that he offers to us. And the result will be good fruit. One commentary says the branches do not derive their strength from the fruit, but from the root. So too we find all that we need, not by our good works, but from Christ. And in him produce what is right and good. And so what does it mean to abide Well, again, Jesus tells us in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That love and obedience aren't contrary to one another. That they can be upheld, but they can only be upheld in the Lord Jesus Christ as you abide in Christ, as you abide in that true vine and you are made a branch. Again, commentary goes on to say this is not simply about adhering to a list of do's and don'ts. The obedience springs from a relationship of love. Love and obedience are all tied up together. Love leads to obedience and obedience is all about loving. Love expresses itself in obedience, and obedience expresses itself in love. That is essentially saying what Jesus told us, that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. And he says this law summarizes the law and the prophets. And I think that is right. It summarizes Hosea for sure and what Hosea is saying here in chapter 10, Israel did not have any love for God, and as a result, they had no obedience. They were not abiding in the true vine, in God himself. And so tonight, as we close, may we abide once again in Christ, sowing the works of love and obedience, and as a result, Producing the good fruit, the good fruit that comes from relationship, comes from being in covenant with God. This Christmas time, we can be thankful that the true vine has come, and by his grace, we are his branches. Jesus says in John 15, These things I have spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Indeed, our joy is full and made complete in Christ. And therefore, as we abide in that vine, let us bear good deeds and produce good fruit. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this covenant relationship, Lord. We pray that we would not stray far from that in our thinking, in our mindset, in the things that you call us to do. May this never be a a cold legal document, the scriptures of rights and wrongs, to-dos and to-do-nots, but rather may we see that there is relationship because there is a living God behind all of it, that we enter into that covenant, we enter into that relationship, we abide in the true vine through Christ, that we are made branches. What a privilege it is to receive the life and strength and spirit in Christ, and through it may we bear good works, good fruits that are glorifying and pleasing to you. We pray this all in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.